They played that ad during the Super Bowl. Did anyone see it? Yeah? That's millions of dollars to pay that in the Super Bowl. Um, and and they're, they have other ads on the thing. So the, the, the group that's doing it is a group called He Gets Us. And they've been doing an ad campaign with different videos like that. And they're doing it because they kind of think Christianity has a PR problem right now. And I think they're right. I think there's a sense that there's a problem out there. Um, Here's the question I found on their, their website. It says, how did the story of a man who taught and practiced unconditional love become associated with hatred and oppression for so many people? So, in our passage today, Paul is talking about I think a similar thing. So two weeks ago, we had uh, Will Gideon. Uh, he, he did a great job last week. So thanks, Will. I don't think he's here um, filling in. But so two weeks ago, remember, we ended in verse, verse 11, uh, right before the reading today, is that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place, given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Like, so, so right Jesus is exalted, um, and then what Paul goes into saying is, yeah, given that, what do we do? You know, and, and he gets into, at one point he says, that you would be children of God without blemish in a, a corrupt and broken culture, right? So it's important that the, the way his followers live for Jesus echoes what Jesus is like, that he, the way he would be glorified. And so Paul is concerned about that as he's talking to these believers in, in Philippi. So he, he says, so then, you know, given that Jesus exalted, he's up above all things, what do you do? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Wait, what? what? Right, is that, that makes sense? Okay, you better work really hard. Because, you know, and you better be really afraid because if you mess up in some way, you'll be fearful of God's anger and you're going to miss out on salvation. Is that, is that what he's trying to say? Like, we, if you know anything else that Paul wrote, in fact, Greg included it in, in his, his prayer, the idea we are not saved because we've worked it out and we figured out our own salvation. We're saved because we've received it as a gift. Um, we're not earning it in any way. So uh, Gordon Fee, a great Bible scholar in his commentary, says this passage, when he says work out with, with fear and salvation, it's not dealing with people getting saved or saved people persevering. Rather, it is an ethical text dealing with how saved people live out their salvation in the context of the believing community in Philippi. You see, when, when Paul wrote work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the you is not singular. It's plural. We read everything. We're Americans. Everything's about us individually, right? This is, this is you all together. Work out the salvation that God has worked into you. Work it out into how you live your life. Work it out in, so that the public can see the salvation. And so the big idea that I'm, I'm 
hitting today is God has begun this work of salvation within us. That was back in Philippians 1, right? He began a good work in you. And it says that if he did that, he will carry it on to completion. We're not worried about our salvation being taken care of, that, that we will go to heaven or not. That's not it says, but that salvation that God has worked in us, we are to put it to work and, and make it visible in public by living it out. That's the gist of what Paul is saying. Think about this. People can't see God, right? The, the people of this world, those who don't know God, they can't see, they can't see the Holy Spirit. They, they can't tell if someone's, you know, got God with them. Um, most people aren't going to read the Bible for themselves. And if they do, they might quite possibly misunderstand it. Uh, there, there's things, it's, it's not easy to necessarily get. And, and so they're not going to hear them for themselves the stuff about Jesus. They're not likely to even come to church, if they're not a believer, to learn what we say. Instead, they will judge the truth claims of Christianity by us. Yeah. Um, by how we live it out. And not just what we do but the actions and attitude with which we do it. This is why my, so again, back to two weeks ago, my main point was disciples are called to be servants with the same mindset, with the same attitude, the same heart as Jesus. Right? It's vital that we do that. Um, and so this passage that we're doing today, so I, I think that was the point from last you know, the, the first part of Philippians 2. In the second part, he gives things that, that relate, principles that deal with being a genuine servant of Christ, of doing that well, of how do we live out as servants of Christ. And so the, the, the context of this is this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is in Rome. He's under guard. Nero's the emperor. Paul is facing uh, a trial he actually will get through the trial, but he, he will eventually be executed under Nero. Um, and in the meantime, he's riding back to the church in the province of Macedonia. And this is a church he had started about 10 years prior. And so in this, he's talking about, okay, here's, here's what it looks like to be a genuine servant of Christ. And so first he gives an exhortation, verses 12 and 13. Then he, then he encourages them, verses 14 to 18. Then he gives two examples Timothy and Epaphroditus, who exemplify genuine servanthood. So I'm just going to run through these as we go through the passage, uh, these 12 principles. They won't be on the screen. They are on the handout if you want to kind of follow along with that, if that helps you. The first principle that comes up is we serve the Lord whether people are watching us or not. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, when he says you have always obeyed, he's talking about you've always, you've been following Jesus, obeying the word that you've received from him, living it out. And you did that when I was there, but you've been doing it even more in my absence. Genuine servants, we serve the Lord whether, whether we think we're being watched or not. Right? It's not about putting on some show. Right? Oh, people are watching. I better, better look busy for Jesus real quick. Right? In fact, Paul, Will's sermon last week really captured that idea. 
Uh, I, so it's perfect that he talked about how we don't, we don't do our, our good deeds, our works of service, to be seen by men, you know, because otherwise we've gotten our reward in full. It, it's, it's what it is, is, is we need to become servants. It's, a, it's something he's doing in us, that we're becoming servants. It's who we are, not just a show we put on. And when it says we do, you know, we work it out in fear and trembling, that's an Old Testament rephrase that, that's it's recognizing God's power. It's knowing we have to answer to God. So even if no one else is watching, we know this. God sees. Our Father sees what is done in secret. And, and He will reward us. So this is how, how we do church stuff, but it's also how we do life. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for men, as working for the Lord, not just for men, right? When you're serving God, when you're doing your job or going to school or running life, doing family, all that, do what you do in service to the Lord. In other words, be a servant 24 hours, not just when you're on the religious clock. So, I'll go faster for the rest of these, don't worry. Second principle. In our service, we rely on his strength, not our own. It says, you know, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure or good purposes. Right? We know, ultimately, it's, it's him working in us, and we're just putting it in. It's his strength. It's his His. Even in our own attitude, it can't come from us. He has to import that into our lives. Um, another verse says, we love because he first loved us. So the strength comes as we, we wait on the Lord, we seek him, we trust in him. And, and in that, he, he enables us to serve in his strength. Third principle. We serve without grumbling or disputing. Okay. It is so easy to get into complaining mode. And I know I am fully often been guilty of this, right? I'll do it, but I'm going to grumble and complain about it the whole time. Or I'm going to get into fights with people because I want to do it my way. And I don't like how you're doing it. So, right, it, it says, do all these things, do all the service without grumbling or disputing. It's, it's actually... a He's, he's kind of referencing the Israelites in the Old Testament, how, how God had brought them out of Egypt, you know, the great act of redemption we talked about, how God had brought them out. He had saved them from slavery. He had saved them from a horrible life, and now they're, they're free. And every time a problem arose, and they, they, they would freak out, and it says they began to grumble against Moses, <laughs> You know, rather than saying, oh, God saved us before, he'll save us again, they quickly went back to grumbling. Man, we Christians can be guilty of this. Instead of being genuine servants, we can get caught up in an attitude of complaining and disputing. And I, the simple truth is, it can, it can undo any positive that the, the serving could otherwise have. Fourth principle. We are to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, that's the language Jesus uses. Here it says that you would be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So we are to serve as, as children of God, blameless, 
we know we, we live in a culture that's about deception and trickery and self-promotion and, you know, salesmanship and this. We don't use those tricks, right? When it comes to our service to Christ, we just do it with an open hand. Receive it as you will. Not manipulative, not deceptive in anything we do. We are as innocent as doves. Now, we live in a crooked culture. So we're not called to be stupid. Jesus says, be wise as serpents, not to be naive, knowing, you know, know, know the culture that you live in. Nevertheless, hold on to that, that innocence um, that you have as, as children of God, blameless and innocent. And then the fifth principle goes right along with that, though. The light of Christ in us shines all the brighter amidst opposition. Right? Yes, we live in a broken, twisted culture. You could point out endless things that are wrong and not as it should be. But I tell you what, I, I, I've studied some Greek and Roman history. It was no better back then. Uh, the, the emperor was Nero, probably the worst emperor of all the time that they ever had in Rome. And Paul, so Paul's writing under that situation. They were just as broken then. Um, there's this tendency to think, oh, this, these kids these days, this is the worst generation ever. Right? You know, oh, you know, we see all the things that are going wrong. We ignore. We think it was really better back in our day. I, I loved how Pat was talking about the movie, you know, how... You know, there's actually a lot of similarities with the, the 70s as there is now. Um, and the only thing we got to really agree on, the only generation that got it right was Generation X. Can I get an amen? Yeah. You know, that, but, um, so, but the truth is, the more corrupt, the, the more messed up things are, the more genuine servanthood sticks out. So take heart. Sixth principle, we hold firm and even have his joy through adversity. It says you do this as you hold out the, the word of life. Um, and, and later he talks about, you know, even as, as things could go wrong, I'm glad and rejoice with you. We hold fast to the word of life. We, we, we've been given this message of God's grace and goodness, and we know even if they make fun of us or if we're mocked or derided in the culture, that's okay. We, got, we, we, we are confident in, in that God's truth is good, and we don't have to get defensive. I can so easily get defensive in this, and I think God's still training me not to be defensive for Christianity, but we just hold out the word of life, hold forth, hold fast to it, um, Paul wants to be proud. I, I find his phrasing, he says, um, so that I may boast, or does it say? So in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. He's like, I want you guys to hold fast to this so that when that day comes, I could say, man, look at those, look at that Philippian church. They went through tough times, but they held firm, right? I hope the same thing for us, right? Look at that East Glenville church. Yeah, it got tough. But they held firm to the word of life as they did it. Seventh principle. We offer our service to the Lord and leave the results to him. So Paul goes on in this, this, this little picture he gives. 
where he says, let's see. He says, e- even, if I, um, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, so you picture sometimes they would have libations, right? You'd pour out. Even if I'm being poured out, I may know that I, I um, that, you know, on the, the sacrificial, sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Like Paul's saying, I, I don't know what's going to happen, right? He, he may be in this trial he's facing. He may be put to death. It may be his blood being poured out. Or he may have, he's also sort of talking about the service that he gave when he, he the missionary work. He says, I, he can't control the results. But whatever he did, he did it to the Lord, right? He did the work that he did as, as going and starting that. He says, I did that unto the Lord. The results are up to him. So when we serve, that has to be our attitude. Lord, I, I would love to see good things result from this. But Father, I offer you what it is, what I have. And I trust that you know what you're doing. It'll, and sometimes it seems like our service to the Lord may short-term, it, it's not working, but God is putting things into play long-term. He's planting seeds that we may not see in our lifetime. And so we trust in him, trust the results to him. So, those are kind of the encouragement and exhortation. Now it moves to the two different servants. So first is Timothy. And so the eighth principle is we have a genuine concern for others. So he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, um, that, I may be, that I too may be cheered by news of you. So, so Paul, remember, he is under guard. He can't go. He can't himself at this point travel and, and visit the churches that he started, but he has a young man with him who's been working with him now for about 10 years, Timothy, and Paul is, is going to send Timothy to, to kind of check on things, to encourage them, and so Timothy actually had been with Paul, had just started with Paul about the time that the Philippian church got started, so they know Timothy, but you know, he was a teenager probably when they knew him, but here's what Paul says, I have no one like him, right, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's pointing to Timothy and says, man, this guy has a genuine concern for other people, including you guys. This is what genuine servanthood looks like. Timothy is different, and Paul has seen it in how he's done his ministry, so he knows he can trust to send Timothy to, to this. Um, and then the, the ninth point is that we can't do it all ourselves. We have to trust and trust ministry to others. So, so I think it was probably hard for Paul to not be able to go himself. Paul was a do-it-himself kind of guy. I mean, he was intense and unstoppable and that was good because that's what was needed to, to start churches in these new Greek cities when the, to spread the gospel amidst all the opposition. Yet God had put Paul now in a spot where he can't go. And he is in a position where he has to entrust ministry to others. He'll send Timothy to Philippi. Later, he'll send Timothy to Ephesus. And there'll be a letter called First and Second Timothy, where he's now guiding Timothy, who's taking on more and more of the ministry as Paul has to, to let go. 
I think we all get put in places like that where we want to do it ourselves, but God is putting us in spots where we have to entrust ministry to others. The the tenth principle is moving on from Timothy to Epaphroditus, but it actually still uses the same thing. So we can't do it all ourselves, so we also send out representatives and support for those who can go. So Epaphroditus is a different situation than, than Timothy. He was from Philippi. In fact, the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Paul. When Paul was under guard in Rome, he, the Romans were not going to provide for him. He, they would keep watch to make sure he stood trial, but his needs, his food, clothes, lodging, that was on him. And so, so Paul needed support. He couldn't work. He wasn't, a, he wasn't an independently wealthy man. He'd always trusted God's provision. So the Philippian church had actually sent Epaphroditus with funds. And so that's what we see. He says, I, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So they sent him, and, and now Paul says, he's my brother. He's a fellow worker in the gospel, fellow soldier in the work of Christ. And he's the one that provided for me when you weren't able to go. Um, so he was the representative uh, of the, the Philippians. But then what happened to Epaphroditus? He got sick. He was an illness to the point where Paul thought he was going to die. And, and you're talking about Paul who would, could often pray and see people healed. So it was pretty serious. And so the principle is serving God involves risk. And so we need to seek his protection for the work. The, the illness had nothing to do with opposition or persecution. It just was a result of probably traveling to a new place or, or just living in a different city. Um, and so he says, nevertheless, God had mercy on me, and not on, or God had mercy on him, on Epaphroditus, and not only him, but also me, because I would hate to have been the one that, that had to send news that your, the guy you had sent had died, and, and I needed him. He was such a great support. So, so he says, God had mercy, and so now that he's well, I'm going to send him back so that I could put your mind at ease, so you don't have to worry about, you know, that anymore. So, yeah, when we serve the Lord, it involves risk. I was, so, I was out of town during VBS, and I'm like, I was thrilled to hear, what, 119 kids? That's awesome. I, I, I can't tell you, or 129. Anyways, I, but I also thought, oh my gosh, we let that many kids on our property? Yeah. Thank God, he protected us, right? And we, we were definitely were under prayer, praying God's you know, protection for what we're doing. There's no way to really do ministry, to serve the Lord without some risk. Um, so, finally, 12th, take time to share and celebrate when we see God's hand at work, right? We don't, we don't just immediately go on to the next thing. We celebrate. It says, uh, for Epaphroditus, let's see. So receive him in the Lord and with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So take time to receive him. I bet they told stories. Hey, Epaphroditus, what, what's it like in Rome? You know, what do you hear about Nero? What's, what's going on there? How is Paul doing? You know, they're probably sharing stories and celebrating what has happened. 
I believe, and here's my point, I believe that, that for, for disciples of Christ to be genuine servants is key to, to God's work in the world. That he wants to shape us, that we would live out in these principles and, and others, that we would learn how to become genuine servants. And I believe that that adds power to our, our message. In fact, I think our, our message is, um, the message of the gospel so let me say, the power is the gospel, is the good news of God's grace. But it adds persuasive power when Christians are, are living as sincere and genuine servants of Christ. In my ministry, I've, I've been very focused on the gospel promotion. How do we get the message out? And sometimes I, I look back and I may not have been as thoughtful about the idea of, of service within the community. Oh, yeah, serving at the soup kitchen is nice, but what matters most is getting people to make a decision for Jesus. And, and there's some truth in that because it is the gospel that has um, power to change lives. I'm, I'm still convinced if only people had a chance to hear it, it would change their life, that you can know God, that you can find salvation. Right? I, I believe that, but I believe the hesitation that people had was not realizing they were eligible for God's grace. And if they could just hear the lengths of, that Christ went to bring salvation, that that would be persuasive. I still think that's true at times. But what I've come to think about more and more is that there's, there's every, er, every age has a different challenge. And in the, this age, it seems like there is a skepticism to whether Christianity is even good or not. So 2 Corinthians 4, 4 states the problem. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the gospel. God's enemy, the devil, has made it that people just can't comprehend it. It doesn't matter how, if you shout the message louder, it's not going to help because there's a blindness involved. There's a greater level of skepticism towards the message. And it seems that people have this negative attitude towards Christianity in general. So I, listen, I try to listen, whether it's on Facebook or just in conversations that I have with people. And, and I want to share just some of the more recent accusations that I've heard about Christianity. And um, just, just kind of hear this. The church is an accomplice to racism. That it's been... Um, too, too easy to go along with racist attitudes. The church has been unloving to sexual minorities. Right? They've seen people carrying around signs that says God hates such and such a people. They've said the church is unconcerned for the poor. For that accusation. The church is, un, is controlling of others, especially women. Have you ever heard anything like that accusation? Or the church is all about striving for wealth and power. Now, I could go on. Those are just some of the ones as I, as I thought to think about it. And, and the truth is, I, I can understand how they've gotten to that perspective. When you look at the stories in the media and how Christianity is portrayed, um, whether you look at, you know, just a few bad apples or whether it's certain fringe groups that, that say things, 
for all of these, there's, there's issues. Maybe it's, some of it goes back to the history of the church and things that we've done wrong. The crazy thing is, and friends, I'm just thinking it out. My experience of the church has been nothing like that. And maybe yours as well. You know, we as insiders, the people I know who, who, are, who are sincere disciples of Christ love people and they're doing good things and they care about some and they don't have hate in their heart towards anyone. Um, and they, they want to see justice and they, they try for that. Uh, I, I know churches, you know, if you took away all the Christians who, who give out food for the poor, there'd be a lot of hungry people. You know, but, but we kind of, maybe that's one of the things Jesus says, right? Don't, don't go around doing these good deeds and telling everyone. Maybe the world doesn't quite realize all the stuff that goes on in the name of Christ. Um, so I, I, I believe that, that, that Christianity is a genuine concern for people. Um, and I see that all the time. So, but verse 4 is the problem, right? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So what do we do about it? Well, the next verse, four, verse 4, verse 5, gives the answer. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ. What's the solution? Well, we, we keep talking about Jesus. We don't self-promote, right? We don't, you know, we try not to be defensive about, you know, oh, if, you know, the church really has done all this good stuff. I've learned you can't win that argument. So, so that's why I love that he gets us ad campaign because I think it captures, hey, look at what Jesus said and taught. We know as Christians we have not always lived up to that, to what Jesus taught. But we're convinced that what he said, what he did, he still is the most amazing man. We'd love to have you take a second look at Jesus. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ and his goodness and grace and, and who he is. And then the second part, what adds persuasive power to that message? We come as genuine servants and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Just shouting louder is not going to win the day. And in fact, quiet service might actually, might actually carry the battle. And that's why I'm, I'm convinced more and more that it's vital that we serve the Lord um, as, as, as the same mindset, that we keep feeding the hungry, supporting refugee work, foster care. Christians, I know, are often involved in, in taking care of, of kids who need help, um, visiting prisoners, giving help and support to young teen moms or unmarried, unmarried moms, supporting orphanages in Madagascar, Brothers and sisters, let's continue to just allow God to show us how to become genuine servants. Because it says, we know, Jesus said to his disciples, freely you have received. Freely give. I just want to close with one more short ad from He Gets Us. Mm-hmm.